everybody. New podcast out with Robert Craven. Robert is a uh, multiple-time CEO um, that has scaled some pretty significant-sized businesses, and he shares his, his frameworks as well as some of his thoughts on conscious leadership and really connecting your employees with the impact uh, that they're having in the world around you. Robert's core belief is that businesses can change the world, and it shines through uh, in the podcast today. So uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this one for if you're a leader or you're an emerging leader in your organization. Um, and he's a fun guy, you know, a whiskey-loving man who uh, drops a stoic philosophy quote from Seneca uh, right in the beginning of the podcast. So this one's... Um, one of my favorites, one of my favorites, and there's been a lot of good ones recently. So uh, check it out. Let us know what you think. Without further ado, Robert Craven. Rob Craven, yeah, welcome cheers. to Beers and Careers. I don't have a beer. because uh, yeah, I can go get one real quick if you can. It's noon on a Friday, and I probably shouldn't, but uh, thanks <laughs> for coming on, Rob. Appreciate it. Um, Rob Craven and I were connected through a mutual friend, Nick Van Nice. Shout out to yeah. Nick Van Nice, who's been on the podcast, former guest of the pod. Um Rob is the founder and CEO of Scale Passion, uh, which he'll tell us a little bit about. He's a uh, four or five time CEO, multiple high growth companies, um, including some exits. And um, Rob, we're pumped to have you on the podcast. Thanks for coming on today. Excited to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get into uh, your journey, get a little tradition here on Beers and Careers of uh, getting some rapid fires out of the way to get to know you. Uh, yeah. And it is Beers and Careers. What, what is your favorite drink, cocktail, beer or libation? Oh man, cocktails. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a whiskey cocktail guy. I, I make, a, I just had one last night. I had friends come over for the football game. There's one called a gold rush. So okay. I, make my own, I make my own honey syrup and it's got lemon, fresh lemon juice. And, uh, I use rye whiskey. Um, so I've been drinking gold rushes, uh, lately. Uh, it's an amazing, uh, whiskey cocktail. That, um, sounds delicious and it's a rainy day. Yeah, it's perfect on a kind of a, a wintry. It's kind of it's kinda, my wife says it's got kind of a medicine-y taste, you know, with the honey and the lemon. But uh, the rye whiskey's got a little more spice to it, so yes. that's what I've been going to. And, and when it's hot and when it's hot weather out here, I do one called a paper plane, which is another bourbon-based cocktail. Um, so yeah, I like I like just the idea of making a good cocktail. If you knew me, you know I'm an Enneagram Seven. I don't know if anybody, anybody that follows us knows Enneagram, but if you know Enneagram, I'm kind of a raging Seven, which is kind of the host of the party. You want everybody to have you know a good time. So when people are over for games or whatever, I'm usually the one shaking the cocktails and, and, you know, making the old fashions and making my own simple syrups and blah, blah, blah. So I love that. I'm going to have to probably pick your brain about the honey syrup after. The, <laughs> can you, can you give me what the rye was last night? Uh, it's a high West double, double yeah. rye. Awesome. Uh, it's just a go-to. It's a nice value brand with a great taste. I've got a client in park city, so I'm there quite a lot. I actually eat dinner a lot at, at the high West uh, tavern there. Um, yeah, it's a great, they, it's a great company. It does a good job with the bourbons. The Love whiskey. that. Yeah. Love that. Uh, you're the second guest in a row that's gone whiskey and it was Manhattan's and old fashioned as last time. So that's right up my alley as well. Uh, love that. Um, give it, what was your first job, Rob? My first job, uh, wow. Early on was just mowing lawns, but your first kind of real job with a, was 16 years old. I actually worked in a sporting goods place. And they did the jerseys where you put the numbers on the back and, you know, tackle twill and silk screen. And so we were kind of the hub in the community for all the athletic, you know, teams like the little league teams and the little, you know, peewee football. And um, it was great. I worked my way up to be a manager there. And then I, I, I you know, I, I worked, I, I basically been working since I was 15, even all the way through uh, college. I paid my way through college, you know, long story there, but 
worked all the way through college and, and, but the first job, real job was in a sporting goods store, like a little tiny community, you know, one bay, you know, sporting goods store. Love that. Where'd you grow up? Where was that store? Uh, Tampa, Florida. So Tampa, Tampa. Florida. Okay. Uh, I was born and raised in North Carolina until about ninth grade. And then I, I've been in Florida pretty much ever since. I ran a company up in New Hampshire, up your way uh, for about eight years. But other than that, I'm, I'm kind of deep roots now in Florida. My girls are fifth generation West Palm through my wife. So some real deep okay. roots here in the West Palm, Jupiter area. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. 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 Uh, are you a quote guy? Any favorite quote? Or I, I'm, I'm guessing based on some of our previous conversations, I know, uh, you read quite a bit, but do you keep quotes in front of you? Yeah, the one I'm kind of uh, the one I've got in front of me right now. I, like, I love quotes, like, uh, but the one I've got in front of me right now that I'm I'm spending a lot of time talking to my founders about is we suffer more often in imagination than in reality. Marcus Aurelius. Uh, that's Seneca. So Marcus Seneca. Aurelius, yeah, it's very stoic, but we suffer more often in imagination than in reality. Um, you know, if you're if you're biblical and you like you know proverbs and and that type of thing. Uh, Proverbs 19:21 is my go-to, which is um, uh, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Uh, mm. And if you don't, you know, if it's not a Lord thing for you, I'm a big believer in calling and passion, and and you kind of trust that. Instead of doing the plans in a man's heart, you, you know, your own plans, but the more you can connect into something bigger than you, universe, God, whatever you want to call it, uh, I just believe it gives you the energy needed to be courageous to move forward. So I, that's my kind of my go-to biblical uh, verse. I, I love that. I, the energy um, to move forward. And also I feel like at the end of the day, regardless of how tired you are, the fulfillment of what you've done, right? 100%. I think the, that concept of vocation. Um, yeah. yeah uh, it's that, I love that. Uh, out of curiosity, either give me favorite book or book you're reading right now. Ooh, favorite book. Um, well, the one I'm reading right now is right there. It's called Competing in the New World of Work. Uh, it's, okay. it's all this research around hybrid, you know, when to be hybrid, you know, how to think about like like the future of the workplace, the future of working, which I love. So it's, it's been a very good one um, and uh, a lot of research. And I like kind of the research ones like um, uh, Good to Great, you know, it's a classic. Yes. So if I was to say my favorite book or the ones that's been the most impactful for me, it would be 15 Commitments. Okay. Uh, of conscious yeah. leadership. It's it's one that I was introduced to probably, oh geez, got to be 10 years ago now, eight, 10 years ago. And it, it's really changed my life in a number of different ways, personally, professionally. Um, it's helped me to navigate my career. It's um, it's just one of those books that you know, I continue to read it. I continue to reference it. I continue to learn something from it every time I read it. Mm. Now, share with us how maybe you went from, and I wrote those books down. It was, I the new world of work, world of work one is so timely, by the way. Yeah. Um, and I, you're like the fifth person that's told me about the 15 commitments in the last like three weeks. So I think that's uh, someone else telling me that it's time to pick that one up. <laughs> Perfect. Can't keep coming around. Um, talk to us about, so you're, you're doing scale passion now, but you graduate from college. Maybe give us a quick overview of how you got to where you are. You know, you look at your LinkedIn, you're clearly, um, I've, I've jumped around. It's been a it's you been jumped a around, but you're involved in a lot, involved yeah. in a lot too, and and um, with what it appears to be just a tremendous track record of success. So I'd I'd love to hear how you uh, got out of school, what you end up doing, and how did it lead to where we are today? Yeah, I'll try to keep this short. Um, 
Yeah, but I was in college. I was in I was a business major, but I was working my way through college, so my grades were horrible. Uh, but I was the president of my fraternity. I got an interview with this company that I had never heard of. Didn't know who they were when I interviewed with them. But everybody's like, you got to go interview with them. It was Procter and Gamble. My big plan, my big plan out of uh, college was to continue playing drums in a rock band. My my lead singer moved to Detroit. And I was sleeping on his floor, and I, that was my big plan coming out of college. I was going to continue to play drums. And and my, everybody in my fraternity was like, you got to go. You got to. Not everybody gets a you know uh, an interview with Procter Gamble. You got to go at least talk to him. I think the only reason I got it was because of my president you know stint. And I walk in and and uh, the guy interviewing he goes, tell me tell me a time when you made a big sale. Like what's the biggest sale you've ever made in your life? And I was like, well I'm president of the fraternity and I went out west and I, I went to this party at UCLA. You know the fraternity my sister fraternity at, at UCLA and they threw this party called Decline of Western Civilization. And our our fraternity was um, known as kind of a gentleman, you know, I mean, we weren't big party. I mean, we were parties, but it was, we were more gentlemen at the time, like, and not the most popular, but we, I basically sold the, I told this whole elaborate story. I won't go into it here, but I, I basically sold a fraternity of 80 people on doing a four day punk rock, heavy, like hardcore metal uh, festival with three stages <laughs> and like 24 seven for four days. And we all got sold them into getting mohawks and earrings and, and it was just this blowout. It's still a tradition today. But I told the whole story about selling this huge party. And uh, the guy loved it. Because it was, and so I got the job at Procter & Gamble. Didn't really know what I was doing. But I, I went into sales, uh, sales, marketing, you know, uh, public team down here in Florida, a little on the Walmart team, really the sales track and leadership and jumped around. Um, they did a big, uh, they did a big downside, not downsizing, but they took like four layers of leadership out. So mm. my boss and her boss became uh, my peers. And so mm. they, that many people didn't leave. So they lost a lot of young talent. I probably would have left anyway. It was a very, you do it our way kind of place. Uh, and so I got recruited to Boston Scientific where I was in sales there, sales leadership. Um, I was the guy who had, you know, seven, like four of my eight major hospitals on five-year deals when everybody else mm. had maybe one. So it was a long-term and I didn't play the commission game. You know, I wouldn't just sell to make the, quarterly numbers because I wanted the relationship. Right. And so I didn't last long there because I just pissed everybody off, even though I was rookie of the year and I had all these long mm. but they weren't very entrepreneurial either. So I went from Procter & Gamble, a huge company to Boston Scientific, a little bigger, uh, but still more professional to a very small company. Uh, it was a startup back in the days when nobody knew what the internet was. Very early internet startup in Gainesville where I went to school. I was the VP of marketing and sales at like 20 something. No and, way. Uh, there was like four of us when we started. When I left, it was about, you know, probably 15 of us at that time. Grew, grew it, you know, but had some um, had some differences with the founders, although, you know, I'm still friends with one of them and uh, ended up leaving. But I went from making a ton of money to making no money. I was like getting $30,000 a year, you know, entrepreneurial. So way too small at the time. <laughs> Um, and then uh, parlayed that into uh, a consulting firm that I ran with a partner that got sold to another consulting firm. Uh, that had spun out of KPMG and they were doing business best practices. It was called the Hackett Group. Okay. Uh, and at the time it was called Answer Think, but it's called the Hackett Group now. And, and they were all about business best practices. So I went in and started, um, there's one team that would do all the business best practice benchmarking. Mm. And then my team would do all the qualitative interviews. So we got to interview the CEOs and the, the board members and the heads of the divisions and CFOs. And then my team would take the data from the benchmark and it was 40,000 metrics across these huge companies, IBM, Textron, big companies. And then we would analyze the data and go back to the team and say, here's what you need to do. You know what I mean? With the data. 
And um, it would turn into an ERP, you know, a lot of times an ERP implementation, we were kind of the front end of that. And then, um, you know, they would say, great, we'll put it in our five-year plan. So it just wasn't moving fast enough for me. Right. So I started working with entrepreneurs here in, in West Palm Beach area, just helping them scale. Instead of playing golf down here, I was helping entrepreneurs with business plans. I just love working with entrepreneurs. It was the first introduction to that. And I met an entrepreneur by the name of Jordan Rubin here in Palm Beach Gardens. He started a company in 1999. When I met him in 99, it was about $2 million company. He was running out of his house. I helped him build a three-year plan to $15 million. Call me later. He hit 15 million. He's like, now what? And I'm like, hire me a CEO. So that was my first CEO gig, a company called Garden of Life. Uh, it's now it, it sold to Nestle a few years ago for 2.6 billion. I did not have stock at that point, but I was there in the very early days and we grew it from, you know, I got there at about 11, 10, 11 million and we grew it to 42 in a year and then 65 the next year. And so just rapid growth. Um, fell in love with being a CEO, building great cultures, companies that integrate social impact with economic impact. Mm. Um, so I went on to do that at another company uh, called New Organic Ventures, and then I went on to do that at another company called Megafood. We ended up selling Megafood to a company called PharmaBite. They make nature-made vitamins. Um, and then after Megafood, did some angel investing and then scale passion. And so the thread through that is a couple threads. One is I love my calling on the earth is to work with founders to help scale up their passions, like help companies scale impact, um, mm. not just financial impact, but also impact in the community, impact with your product, impact to your customer. That's my passion. It's what I love to do. I can talk about it all day long. Um, and the other thread through there is the zone of genius concept. You know, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but yeah. when you're in your energy, when you're in your zone of genius, you just get unlimited energy. And when you honor that, when you honor that calling, when you can identify what that calling is, it's just energy, energy, energy. And you don't have to worry about the results when you're plugged in that way. So I try to bring that to my clients now. Um, hmm. And, you know, along with, you know, so the right brain stuff, like plug into your energy, plug into your focus, but then the left brain stuff, like how do you do strategy and how do you scale up and how do you think like a CEO and how do you trickle that down to your company? And so that's what scale passion is now. Wow. Very cool. I, I'm, um, I have so many questions. This, the zone of genius piece, is that a Lencioni thing? No, Gay Hendricks. Uh, so Gay Hendricks is another, he was a major influence on the folks that wrote 15 commitments of conscious leadership. Okay. Gay Hendricks wrote a book called the big leap. Um, okay. And he outlines four zones, zone of incompetence, zone of competence. So to me, that's like plumbing. I'm competent. Zone of excellence, which I would say for me was like my CEO gigs. I, I was very good at that. I had a lot of success building great culture. And then zone of genius, the difference between zone of genius and zone of excellence. Um, everybody kind of wants you to stay in zone of excellence. It's pretty safe. Zone of genius feels unsafe a lot of times. But it's that place where you could roll out of bed at four o'clock every morning and get right to it. And the day goes by quick and, and, you know, time flows. You're in flow. It's easy. You wonder why it's not easy like this for everybody. Right. Um, and so I think the one of the one of the key things any leader can do is figure out what that zone of genius is for you and then honor it. Right. <laughs> um, right. Like honor it like crazy. And I've been blessed, you know, Mark, to, to position my life now where I spend 85, 90% of my time in my zone of genius. And, you know, when I first learned zone of genius, I was probably spending 20% of my time, even running companies. So okay. now that I'm at 80, 85%, you know, everything's changed, you know, just energy, relationships with my wife, with my kids, I mean, like mm. all the personal stuff. So it's, it's, a, it's a big core theme for me. Um, I, that is, uh, that is so interesting. I, I'll check that out. Would you suggest reading the big leap? Yeah. Wonderful book. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, the other, you know, the other concept in in the Gay Hendricks, you know, conscious leadership, is this concept of our states of being, 
to me, you know, to me is where most people live. It's triggered. It's below the line. They call it to me yes. is when we're at the effect of that victim know, that mentality. kind of. Yeah. Victim mentality. A lot of times hero can be to me. Like, um, you know, I'm trying to make you feel better just so I feel better. You know, it's like below mm-hmm. the line. And then there's by me, which is the first big step. It's like taking control, right? Like I'm, I make my own story. I decide what's good and bad. I don't let the world tell me what's good and bad. Right. And then there's through me and as me, which is a whole nother mm. you know, thing. Um, but, you know, to me to buy me is the big, big leap, basically. Um, and then you can start to explore things like through me and as me, which is more about consciousness and that kind of thing. But um, all those kinds of concepts have really radically changed my life here in the last 10 years or so. How did you how did you th- how did you think about like your. um you seem like even though we're talking about consciousness in general and conscious leadership, I got to think that Boston side before you left and went consulting, I got to think you were fairly conscious about what was giving you energy, what you were doing. Like at that time, did you ever. Um, I don't want to say imposter syndrome, but did you think that you were nailing your vocation, but in reality, you were just still discovering it? Like, like what we're like when you were dealing with sales and leadership tracks, right? And there, there's some difference there. And then you mentioned a little bit of marketing as well throughout your time. And, and like as a CEO, that all comes together. I, I appreciate that. But talk to me about like through that process, were there times when you're like, man, I, I'm, uh, I know I need to spend more time on marketing, but the leadership sales piece is giving me more energy or vice versa. Like I, I'm interested to hear your like the the pre enlightened rob craven so to speak yeah no it's a great question well you mentioned nick before nick was my first you know coach personal coach okay to help me tap into my energy and really understand that in a deeper way daily rituals you know that kind of mm-hmm. thing so a lot of people get their energy outside of work and then yes. bring it to work you yes. see what i mean so i know a surfer who gets his energy by getting up at five o'clock every morning he's a great ceo but his energy comes from surfing and then he mm-hmm. brings that into work okay I think it's the holy grail when you can match work up with what gives you energy. That's like the holy grail. That's mm-hmm. genius thing. But I think, you know, you mentioned imposter syndrome. What I struggled with as a young leader was approval. Um, usually when we're in the to me state, I was mentioning before, fear kind of governs the to me state. So fear is kind of a core emotion in that to me state. And fear comes from one of three places, a want for security, control, or approval. So mm-hmm. if a lot of us, you know, like there's people I know who are really afraid not to make enough money or that they're going to be poor security, you know what I mean? Or, or relationship security, they might lose their wife or whatever. And then control. I know a lot of, especially entrepreneurs who are big into control and they've got a big fear of losing control. Uh, for me, it was approval. So I'm a, I'm a, I was raised a certain way and I've done a lot of homework on myself around that, but like I needed approval. So I thought a mm-hmm. lot about how do I get approval from people? So whether it was a board or whether it was a founder or whether it was a customer. So I was kind of trapped in that. Okay. I was kind of trapped by approval when I was a young leader. Okay. Um, and so it took, it took a lot of work. Uh, it took a lot of work and a lot of homework and a lot of practice to break out of that and to, know, and to understand that I'm the source of my own approval. I'm the source of my own security and my own control. And so that takes practice. And over the last you know, couple of years in particular, three years or so, I've been able to break out of that and see the benefits of that. And, mm-hmm. and, and it also highlights all the stories I made up about other people that I didn't know were true. Like mm-hmm. if I do this, they're going to be mad. Well, I had no clue. It's a story. So just being able to separate fact from story and start to check my stories with my wife, with my partners, with, you know, with my board at the time or whatever, 
has been a game changer. And so, but it takes practice and you got to use a little bit of courage and you ease into that. Um, but yeah, imposter syndrome was a big deal for me when I was a CEO. I mean, and, and, and a young manager, you know, cause I always tried to dress the way I thought I was supposed to dress and, and, you know, I wasn't authentic. And I think mm. a lot of people live life in that space where they're not authentic. They're yes. trying to need something to solve, to make somebody else happy uh, or to mm-hmm. contain, maintain control or whatever. And so when you release that and you can be truly authentic, again, going back to that energy. <laughs> and so yeah. I, I'm a big believer that, that businesses can change the world. And it starts with the leadership of the business. And so you plug that leader into their authentic energy and the business will be successful. Mm. Uh, it flows through. Do you... Um struggle like in your consulting roles and in scale passion today um how often do you work with a leader that maybe just can't get to authentic every day really okay oh it's a constant thing i get there sometimes i can get yeah there. okay so it's a, but it's a practice and so the big the the the, the practice is awareness so mm-hmm. you know when i'm aware that i'm you know in the constitution they call it below the line you know, I'm yes. at the effect of, I'm at the effect of someone else's approval or control or whatever. So when I'm at the effect of, or I'm in a to me state, most people aren't aware that they're there. They just live there. You see what I mean? Yes. So the practice is just to become more and more aware. So mm-hmm. when I work with my clients, I'm a mirror. I'm like, what I hear you saying is this. And is that right? And then they're like, yes. And I'm like, well, the story I make up over here is, or, hey, what part of that is fact? And what part of that are you making up? Like, mm. and so I, I, and I've had coach, I still have a coach, right. It helps me with this. And so every day I still have things I struggle with, but the more you practice that awareness of, Hey, I'm below the line, you know, conscious leadership talks about his location. Where are you? So just by saying I'm below the line and recognizing that I'm in my amygdala, I'm in fight, flight, flee. I'm not in the front part of my brain where I can logically think this through. I'm back here just by saying I'm below the line and recognizing that you're letting the back of your brain really, you know, run to you yeah great awareness and then the more you practice that you're able to say do i really want to let my back of my brain you know run me right now right so that awareness is the first step it's like where are you let's just get you there so all of my clients struggle with this i could tell you story after story after story like all all the people that i work with every leader i ever led every vp myself i mean so it's it's a constant it's like going to the gym i mean we go to the gym to practice this stuff Right. So awareness is something you practice. That's why meditation has become so popular because meditation is basically just practice of awareness. It's not about yeah. quieting your mind at all. It's right. about recognizing that your mind is not quiet and then trying to quiet it. That's one rep. Mm-hmm. So meditation is all about awareness. It's not foo-foo, woo-woo. You know no, I, I, it, it really resonates. Um, I'm guessing you're aware of Naval Ravikant. Oh, well, sure. Yeah. 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 I, there's, a, there's a quote Naval has where it's like uh, – True happiness is sitting alone in a room for 30 minutes and and not and, and being able to do it and, or something of that effect. I forget the exact quote, but I've, like it's not, to your point, you're not quieting your mind. It's like, can I deal with who I am, what I am and the things around me and parsing yeah. through that? I think it's a it's a back really in interesting practice. My coach back in the day, he was like, I was having trouble meditating because everybody I was listening to on podcast, Tim Ferriss, they were all talking about meditation. I downloaded the Headspace app. I, you know, I did the whole thing. And I told my coach, I'm like, I'm really struggling. He goes, what's the problem? I go, I just can't quiet my mind. It's just chatter, chatter, chatter. And he goes, that's not the objective. You know that, right? And I go, no, I thought that was the objective. (laughs) No, he said, the objective is to recognize your mind's not not quiet and quiet it. Mm -hmm. And then even if that lasts for two seconds, just recognize it again. He goes, every time you do that, that's a rep. And I was like, that 
that was the game changer for me because it got me off the hook. I was beating myself up because I couldn't quiet my mind. Yes. But when I recognized the game was to let it chatter and then say, oh, it's chattering. Oh, let me bring it back. It's, it's, it's practicing coming out of your brain. I think every leader could benefit from this because we all go below the line. The world is designed yes. to take us below the line. It's yes. The world around us is designed for it. So the more we're geared towards being aware of that, it, it, you flex those muscles and then you get better and better at making good decisions from above the line, which mm. is curiosity and play. And like, how do we really think through this versus letting it you know, control us? Um, every leader, I, I think it's a huge. And so what coaches like I do or Nick or others, what coaches like we do is just try to hold the mirror up and say, hey, man, I, I got you. But where are you? Like, let yeah, me, yeah, pay attention. Then, yeah. Do you how does um, how does Rob meditate today? Uh, every like, day, what, 20 days, 930 after I walk the dog and get a shower. So it's not walking the dog, like walking the dog. You don't consider the meditation. You're just sitting there thinking. You know, I could meditate walking the dog, but I use that time to read, like listen to Audible and oh, okay, okay, cool. learning time with the dog. Yes, yes. Um, but I have, you know, I've gotten into a habit where it's, you know, 20 minutes for me. I started at 10. Um, you know, 20 can get, you know, a little angsty for people, but even five minutes, just setting a clock and just recognizing every time, just kind of just bring it back to the breath. I mean, boom, boom, boom. So it just takes practice, but I've settled in at about 20 minutes. Um, I use a, uh, I use an app called Waking Up. Um, uh, that's oh, yes. you know pretty amazing and uh you know every day sam harris sam, sam harris, harris yeah. That, yeah and so sam i would not start with sam harris I'm over here yeah. i'd start with yeah. something more of headspace but yeah. sam sam is you know really good and so his daily his daily meditations are pretty amazing but from a business standpoint practical standpoint i wish i had learned this when i was 20 something you know i mean it took me till i was 40 something you know to, to get yeah. into it but the the awareness of the, the whole concept of to me to buy me, you know, that awareness, the fact that we believe our own stories, that we, we make our stories fact. If I had yes. known that in my 20s, it would have been a game changer. We believe our own stories is uh, it could be the quote of the podcast here. Uh, it's not only we believe them, we, we believe them as fact. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Fact, you know, conscious leadership teaches that fact is only what a video camera records. Yes. Like that there's make, that, coming down outside and the farmer yeah. says, woohoo. And the people going to Disney world says that's bad. And so, you know, that's the story around it. Um, mm -hmm. I talk to founders all the time. They're like, we missed our sales. And I'm like, Oh, you mean that number that you set up back in December, you missed it in September. Right. So the facts are in December, we said we were going to do a million dollars, you know, in September, in December, we said we were going to do a million dollars in September of the next year. And we only did 800. And so now the story that you're making up is that's bad, right? Mm. So <laughs> missing a number in the business world becomes bad. Well, <laughs> it's nine months ago, so things have changed, right? Right. And you so, made up the number originally, to your point. You made it up 100%. Right. So it's, you know, I try to teach that budgets are wonderful for learning. Like if we beat it or we miss it, what's the learning? But horrible if you're using it to beat people or leave the company, right? Mm. So it's, um, it's, it's it's a different mindset and so this whole concept of fact versus story is a, is a game changer for great leaders I, that's that was uh, i mean it's honestly helpful for me in my role and and i was interested about your meditation practice because for me it's been a um i don't have it dialed in the same manner you do from a daily ritual for me it's been either uh waiting to get my kids off the bus right and be like well this is 10 minutes where i like don't need to look at my phone yeah like like eliminating the phone as a uh 
distraction kind of can force you to do that. And the other one is um, I do play a lot of golf walking. I like I hate taking a cart and I hate having my phone out and like walking. Um, it's funny, though, there are times when I'm uh, playing golf and because I use that sometimes as meditation time and I assess where I'm at in life. Oh, yeah. I'll be like, man, I don't want to go- oh, be like, you know, golfing can take a little while. I'll be like, I don't want to be golfing anymore. Now I want to go take action to what I'm doing. So it's a it's a it's a very um, funny situation. But I uh, it's a personal thing. But I was that's I appreciate you sharing your story because I'm always interested to how people apply. Um, well, even meditation for me, like uh, when my father died, you're just sitting out back of my house and just taking in the environment, you know mm. what I mean? And then recognizing my grief and allowing it, you know, just yeah. sitting there for a little bit. So it's just awareness. It's just the practice of awareness. Like in mm. your golf game, wow, look at that lake or wow. It's right. It's just you. awareness. Uh, it's, it's intentional awareness, basically, is what mm-hmm. we're trying to play with. No, that, that makes sense. Um now, as, you, as we pivot kind of talk, I'm interested to talk to you also about like organizations, right? You've been part of many successful organizations. Yeah. Have you always had a coach yourself once you yeah. got into the CEO world? Yes. Okay. And can you maybe share, you talked about cultures and you and you talked about um, social impact as part of as part of what the organizations were, uh, which got you up and, and inspired to lead daily. But can you maybe talk about at the macro um similarities for you in the best organizations if i'm a leader listening to this podcast and uh i think i'm being successful or i want more success than i have can you maybe share some things that you look at and go can kind of a litmus test if an organization is successful or not yeah i think uh what comes to mind for me mark is you know i'm writing this book scale passion and there's really five you know my my, my goal is to get this thing out in the next couple of years but it, it there's really five things that running i've run you know four or five companies four companies you know bigger companies five total companies in the last 20 years and as a leader or ceo in all of them and i and like you i i I learn like i've been learning i was in ypo i would try everything they taught me in ypo i tried this book i tried this technique i tried this strategy group i tried this you know i won't name all of them yeah i've tried them all right and so i've been just boiling it down boiling it down boiling it down and every place i've gone i've just tried to boil it down boil it down boil it down and I've kind of boiled it down to these five, you know, kind of core disciplines. And, and there's two that you start with, which is really first, first one is uh, I call it stage one, stage two. So stage one of the rocket, right? Like if you think about a rocket on a pad, stage one gets it off the pad. Stage two kind of pushes it in the right direction, right? So stage one is lead yourself, like personal mm-hmm. leadership. If the leader can't lead themselves, it will trickle down. Um, as the leader goes, so goes the business. Yes. So if the leader is disciplined and happy, the business will be disciplined and happy. If the leader is miserable and, a, and crabby person, the business will be miserable and crabby, right? So first it's lead yourself. And second, in my world, it's nail your strategy, like clear, aligned strategy that you can then use to run the business. And most strategies I see are just lacking in accountability and specificity, or they're way too big. You know, they, mm. they think there's, there's like 10 objectives. Um, you know, versus I, I always strive for less than three, like three to four. So lead yourself, know your strategy. If you can do that, then you can do stage two, which is lead others, like engage others, lead others, build a great culture and execute. So lead others, execute will be stage two. And then fifth, the fifth element kind of runs through it all, which is inspire. So I want an inspiring leader. I want an inspiring founder. I want an inspiring mission I want to hire inspiring people. I want them to be a part of an inspiring you know, situation. 
Um, and I've been blessed to, to run four or five, you know, teams that were inspiring. They were inspired uh, to, mm -hmm. to be where we were, to working on a big, inspiring mission. Uh, mm -hmm. And so when you can line those things up, you know, that's kind of what I've distilled in 20 years of running businesses. Uh, then you get something special and I call it scaling passion. And I'm a big believer in this guy, Michael Porter. He wrote a, a great Harvard okay. business review, I think back in 18, called Creating Shared Value. Yep. And so to, to Michael Porter, shared value is the organization that can, can maximize economic impact and social impact. And what he's proven is that when you integrate social impact into the strategy, you actually get better economic impact. You attract mm. the right people. You don't lose them. You can do good in the community. You know, you can. And so you get more economic impact. So I'm a big believer in that combination. And these five things I've mentioned are kind of core elements to help drive that and deliver it. Now, I feel like lead yourself, nailing the strategy, leading others and executing and accountability. I think that's stuff that um, is very well, uh, not well documented, but it, it's talked about often, right? Mm -hmm. that's a, that's a, those are, the, but the inspiring piece is, is really really piques my interest when I when I speak with you because um as a leader just knowing that I need to create an inspiring place to work is a daunting sentence right like just just that in and of itself but maybe you could share um if you could share a story of a company that other you work with or that you ran that really lacked inspirational an inspirational environment when you arrived and how you um change that culture over time and and to to create a place like that because I, I i think it's easy to understand how we need cash to survive as a business yeah, it's another right that's like gasoline it's the biggest achilles heel of every company i work with is a focus on revenue like a focus right? on hitting the number yeah um, it is the biggest achilles heel of every company i work with uh, I can give you two examples, you know, quick ones. Uh, one, we made a small, we made an investment when I was doing angel investing in a company. Um, I'll, I'll mention the name, Holmes Mouthwatering. He's just ramping it up. He's an amazing guy. So this okay. guy, Ethan Holmes, um, this guy, Ethan Holmes, uh, 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 African-American gentleman, Cleveland, Ohio, um, pure entrepreneur, was selling chocolate bars and then started selling his grandfather's applesauce in high school and then started immediately teaching underprivileged kids in his, you know, community how to do entrepreneurism and just as passionate about entrepreneurism as a way out of the hood, if you will, like as a way out of poverty. Yeah. Um, and so when I first met him, he was launching his applesauce company, uh, Holmes Mouthwatering, and, and he's got a vision to create like a, you know, a suite of products, right? Snack products. But he's starting with applesauce. It was his grandfather's recipe. And he was reading all the books and he was doing all the, you know, he's doing what all the, you know, um, accelerators were telling him to do. And, and his story was nowhere in it. And I'm like, Dude, you're passionate about underserved communities and bringing people up out of that through entrepreneurism. Let's get that story into your product, right? And so we made a pretty hefty investment in his company and hired one of the best marketing firms in our space to integrate that story into his package and into his website, like his story. And through that, in, in addition to um, integrating the story into the brand, we also put into his uh, business plan to go raise money from investors that he wanted to go into his, his first community in Cleveland and build a hub where he could teach entrepreneurism and they could do small batch uh, manufacturing of applesauce so he could hire under, underserved people like wow. people out of prison and then teach entrepreneurism as a hub, like his headquarters. And th that can scale into other places, New York and L.A. and Chicago and underserved communities. And he made it a part of his business. Now, 
the shared value part here is that when he taught entrepreneurism to these high school kids and sometimes freshmen in college, as a part of the entrepreneur process, he would take them into a store and let them do demos of his product. And so and he paid them that. He paid them, let's say, I'm just making this up. He paid them 15 bucks an hour to do that. So they won and they got to learn about selling and demoing and interacting with consumers and build their confidence. But if you were to, to hire a demo firm to do that, it'd be 40 bucks an hour. Mm. So you see the difference, right? Yeah. And so he's able, able to save money and create a win-win mm. impact, right? And so it's a great example of, of where he was able to, re, I, I believe that, you know, the work that I did with him, I was just pumping up his courage. I'm like, yes, you can put your story in the business. Yes, you can do this in your business. Yes, we can put it in the business deck. Now you're going to invest investors that are going to be attracted to that. And there's going to be a lot that aren't. Okay. Mm. So that's where the courage comes in. You got to have some courage. So that's one example of, you know, a company that's done that. And then, you know, the other one, Nestle, you know, the chairman of the board of Nestle dropped in. I've worked with other companies that have done it. Like Megafood, we did this. It was amazing. At Megafood, we were, we did some consumer research and our consumer who we thought we knew through this research without our prompting really said, I expect you to be our advocate. I want you to advocate for us. I want you to be aggressive and advocate. So I hired a VP of social impact, gave her a staff, gave her a budget, and we went out and raised um, like 50,000 names to ban glyphosate as a desiccant on oats. Okay. Wow. So I won't go into detail of it, but we changed the law to get Roundup. Basically, they were spraying Roundup on yeah. oats right before they would harvest it. It wasn't for weeds, it was just to make it drier so that they could get more out of the harvest. Mm. Right before they harvested, they were spraying, spraying Roundup. And so one of the things we did was we got that banned, okay, at, at the federal level. Wow. And so we made a real difference and we were able to use that to leverage our marketing, you know, to really attract people that, wow, all things being equal, I want to support that company because they're doing more in the world than just selling product. Mm. Uh, that's another example. And then Nestle had a great, I can give you an example, of examples, I'll stop, but Nestle yes. had a great example where they, they invested a billion dollars in Africa to create infrastructure to link an, agrar uh, an agrarian community where they were making lots of fruits, you know, growing lots of fruits and vegetables to the port. And so they, they created infrastructure from this community in Africa to the port and upgraded the port so they could get cheaper materials. So they wow. were able to save on cost of goods, but that African nation was lifted way up, you know, by this. Oh, yeah. And, and so it's things like that that you can do at big companies, small companies. And so what I try to do with my clients is, is help them find that, like connect those dots. And it starts with the founder's passion when I'm working with companies that have a founder or a leader, you know, that mm -hmm. like, I always try to kind of connect it in or the CEO's passion or whatever. Because if you can get the CEO or the founder behind it, it'll flow. It's starting yes. to actually happen. So, yes, that's so interesting. So like at Megafoods, because I'm a little aware of that example. Yeah. Although I didn't know the detail about the glyphosate. I find that incredibly interesting. Um, and awesome, by the way. Um, yeah. Like, was there... Were there negative ramifications about you, like to existing employees, or were there any naysayers, even if it's a small group, less than 10% of the population, that didn't like that pivot into the inspirational culture or didn't fit with them? Did you, was there a, um, did you have to be courageous in doing this, knowing that not everyone that was part of the team might be part of the team uh, moving forward? Or, I mean, it's a pretty honorable thing, so I'm guessing most people jumped on, but I'm just interested in the business application of it. Not in that instance. There's another instance where we did, but you know, you, you mentioned it as a pivot. It was really an add-on. So our yeah. our our mission was already about you know curing nutritional poverty in our lifetime was our vision. Okay. We were okay. we were big mission, big vision, big core values. 
we were attracting people that were taking 30% less what they were making someplace else to come work with us because of mm. our mission, not just because of the product. And the product was fantastic too. We've dealt with mm. farmers, we had farmer issues and blah, blah, blah. So it wasn't in that case. I'll, I'll say, you know, um, we did roll out, we did roll out conscious leadership in a pretty deep way um, because I wanted to go faster. So the strategic imperative for rolling out conscious leadership was I wanted the company to go faster. And I had identified through surveys that we were getting kind of caught up with gossip. Uh, and there was the, they call it the meeting after the meeting. Like I would come in all fired up expecting people to tell me if I was wrong or push back and nobody would till after the meeting, I wasn't in the meeting. Mm. And I'm like, I'm done with that. We're not doing that anymore. <laughs> like that doesn't work. And so conscious leadership has a lot to do with candor. Like how do you foster candor in an organization? How do you limit gossip? How do you create authentic relationships and authentic you know, conversations? So we invested in conscious leadership as a way to drive that. I wanted to go faster and I wanted less drama. I wanted, le I wanted more candor, less gossip. And so when we rolled that out, there were people that didn't want to play in mm. conscious leadership. One of the things about conscious leadership is being honest about your feelings. Like I must tell somebody I'm scared or I'm angry three times a, you know, a day on my calls. Yeah. And I teach people how to like CEOs, founders, like teach them, teach them how to be comfortable saying I'm feeling some fear right now because that's true. And that fear yeah. has a lot of wisdom. Well, there are people that don't want to feel their fear. Like mm. there are people out there that just don't want to play with that at all. Uh, and I make up, especially in New England, very stoic, very. <laughs> yeah, know, right. So, yes. Fair. And it's like when you can tap into your superpower of your feelings, like your core emotions, it's a superpower. It tells you something. When you use it as a to me device, it's very yeah. scary. But when you use it as a by me or through me, you know what I mean? Kind of, mm -hmm. it could be a superpower because fear is just telling us something needs to be addressed. And if you're on my team, Mark, and you say you're afraid of something or you're feeling some fear, I want to know more about that because we're right. probably missing something. Right. Uh, or if you're angry, if you're feeling anger, that just means something needs to stop. There needs to be some boundaries. Okay, what needs to stop? Like, tell me that lesson. So I'm a big fan of bringing feelings into the workplace. And not everybody. So I lost I lost two VPs in that transition that just didn't want to play. Um, mm. And it was OK because I love them and I wanted them to be happy. But also it was OK because I wanted an environment that was low drama. And if you're right. not willing to go there, you're just going to keep repressing your feelings. I can't trust you. We can't get to that place of no drama. So I made the decision for the company. You see what I mean? Mm, I got that. That makes a ton of sense. And, I, you know, I appreciate you sharing that, too, because I think that. Uh, too often I read about things or listen to a business podcast where they talk about all the glory and it's like, yeah, but there had to be some trouble in the implementing of some of this. So that's very helpful. Did you feel like the feelings component and getting that, that shared vulnerability, right? That you're really talking about the vulnerability. Yep. Was that, I know there's no silver bullet. Was that a was that the silver bullet, or was that a large portion of how you increase candor? Like if you had to reflect in your time and go, man, I the culture became much more candid. Um, was that was that a, a huge piece of it? Well, the big lesson I learned, and, and when I when I brought in conscious leadership, I it had been I've been practicing it myself for about a year. Okay. I brought it in work with my executive team. We practiced it for another six months or eight months. And what I learned very quickly when we brought it into the whole company and when I brought it into the executive team was in the 15 commitments of conscious leadership, the book I mentioned earlier, candor is commitment number four, okay? Okay. So commitment number four is candor. And so what I had to learn was that the other three are pretty crucial before you get to candor. And so okay. commitment number one is 100% responsibility. 
People have to understand that they make their own reality. Fact versus story. I'm responsible for my reality. You cannot make me scared. Mm -hmm. I'm scared. Okay, something yes. happened and I'm scaring myself, right? Yes. So 100% responsibility is number one. Then curiosity, like how can we be, learn to be curious? Mm. And then feeling your feelings and being aware of your feelings is number three. Okay. So those three things kind of add up to candor. Yeah. <laughs> so we had to practice each of those uh, in order to get the candor. And the feelings one, and sometimes the 100% responsibility run can be very difficult for people because they're so used mm. to blaming others uh, and being at the effect of. So it's, you know, in every instance, I'm looking for what's my responsibility here? How can I take responsibility? I can't really be responsible for your responsibility. You are responsible for your responsibility. You know what I mean? We can make good agreements and we can stick yes. to those agreements. Yes. But I'm responsible for myself, like my mm -hmm. feelings, my truths, my actions, right? So that's a really core principle. And you can't really get to candor unless you practice these others is the big learning that I had. That, make, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you sharing that breakdown. Now, I, I mean, the audience, if you're not inspired to read Conscious Leadership after this, I think we've lost <laughs> you because that is phenomenal. It's a game changer. I, I, I mean, all my founders who, who have really embraced it in a deep way, just the lexicon of it. Like there's a lex, there's a part of the lexicon, which is I make up a story. So when I'm in a, in, in a, in a room of leaders and a lot of times a leader would just say, this will never work. This is bullshit. We tried it two years ago. It's not going to work. Okay. Like, and you know, that's, I, I used to have those conversations all the time in meetings, like this will never work. And everybody digs in and, you know, you're wrong and I'm right. You know, it's that kind of thing. And when you can get into an environment where you say, guys, I'm, I'm feeling a little anger right now. OK, um, I've got a story in my head. The story that I'm thinking about is three years ago when we tried this and we fell flat on our face and we got chewed out by the board. And so it's, I'm right. feeling that anger now, but it's the story from before that I'm feeling. You see what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. way yes. safer <laughs> it's right. like way safer in the room because it's yes. your feeling it's your story it's not you know you're not doing this you're doing this mm. and so just a subtle lexicon change like i'm making up a story you'll hear me say it all the time i've got a story or i'm having the thought it's me owning it and and when i'm talking to a founder i'm like you know can i check my story i've got a story that you're really scared here because if you don't if you don't make these set this sale the board is going to fire you but it's my story about it. Can I check my story? Is that where your head's at? You see how safe that is? Yes, it's way yes. safe. Yeah. And uh, so it's just those little lexicon things. Or I hear all the time in our meetings, what are the real facts here? Because when you dig into the facts, nine out of 10 that you think are a fact are not. They're not a fact. It's just the story mm -hmm. you're assigning as fact. And when you can pull that apart, it's like, oh, I'm like, well, why don't we try on the opposite of that story? Because it's just as true. Well, and I, like when I'm hearing you talk and, and go back to the um, example you gave earlier, it, that also probably tears down the walls of groupthink, right? Because oh, your point of rain, right? The farmer goes woohoo and the people at Disney are like, oh, man, that stinks. Well, if I've been in a company for so long, we're going to have similar opinions and similar stories about similar facts. Yep. And so I could see the uh, that's like an aha I'm having here speaking with you well, today. Yeah, we are like, icebreakers just trying on an opposite of a story like. Just let's play with the opposite of that. Like, right. what if it's not bad? Convince me it's good. <laughs> like, yes. you know, just play. You become the defending attorney. Defend, defend my case over here. You know what I mean? Yes. And so it, 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 it's a practice that helps you recognize that our stories are just that. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, our stories are what keep us in prison, right? I mean, they just yes. lock us down in our daily lives and our marital lives and our work life. It's all about the stories. If I leave this job, I'll, I'll won't be able to make another month money. These are all stories. 
Hmm. And so it's like um, the, the work you do on that can be a real game changer personally, professionally in a company, uh, and it can reduce drama in a big, big way. Now, I, I appreciate that. Um, as we're kind of getting closer on time, real quick, through your through what you're doing, when you look back on your career this far, like when did your career change from like job to vocation for you? When did, when was the click? Yeah, you know, look, I, I'll be honest with you, I'll be very transparent. I'm not a very religious guy right now. Okay. Yeah. I would count myself as more spiritual. I believe yes. in lots of different things and we can talk religion if you want. Yeah. Uh, but at the time I was pretty religious. Okay. okay. And this was back in uh, 2003. Okay. Uh, I'll try to keep the story short. Uh, but it was January 2003. And um, I was in a church that was doing at the time it's called purpose driven life. It's like a daily devotional, 40 day de- devotional. And the church was doing the devotional together. Okay. So mm-hmm. day one, January one. Okay. So I think it was January 20 something like 22 or 23. It was like the 23rd and the 40. And I, w- I would get up at five o'clock. I was really committed to it. I got up at five o'clock and I would, you know, read the chapter and do some prayer and start the journaling. And on day 23rd, <laughs> you know, you're going to think I'm crazy as I'll get up. But I, I kind of heard, okay, it wasn't a voice. I didn't, you know, that kind of thing. But the insight I had was really clear. It was, you are going to be a change the world CEO and you're going to give it all to God, okay? Mm. And I had never thought about being a CEO. I was a consultant at the time. I was consulting. I had no desire to be a CEO. And I just sat there for an hour <laughs> and I was like, you know, just kind of journaling and letting that sink in. And it became really clear you're going to be a change the world CEO was the word. It could change the world CEO and you're going to give it all to God. You're going to like spread. And, and I now interpret that to, and you're going to spread that gospel. Okay. Yes. Yes. Like, so I took the day off and I called my boss. Well, I, at first I did, I, I did a little report. Like if I'm going to be a CEO, what are the skills I need to have? And it was like, well, you need to be, you, have, you need to have PL responsibility, which I had never had. You need to hire and manage a team, which I had really never done. Uh, I was more, you know, consulting track and sales and all that sort of stuff. And so there's three or four things that I came up with that I needed the skills to do to become a CEO. And like a good, you know, like a good manager at the time, I set a goal. I'm like, okay, I want to be a CEO in 10 years. Like, so what do I need to do to go get this, you know, this, this skills? And so I called my boss and I said, am I going to get these skills here at, at, at answer thing? And he said, probably not, because I wasn't in the old boys club, which was KPMG, right? So it was yeah. a partner, it was a partner thing. And I'm like, okay, well, I want to get these skills. And so I started calling a lot of the headhunters who were calling me. And I said, I don't care what industry, I don't care what title, really. I just wanted to have PL responsibility, hire fire people, and you know, two or three other things. And they were like, great, you know, <laughs> which I've learned later is a horrible way to engage a uh, career. But, um, <laughs> but I was like, I'm, I just felt this passion, this calling, and commitment to it, like totally. And then mm. Mark damned if, like, eight days later, Jordan, uh, Ruben, who I mentioned earlier, who I helped back in 1999 build the three-year plan. And he and I would just wave at a church at each other, like no big deal. I mean, I kind of drifted away from him over yeah. three years. But eight days later, after this big revelation, Jordan called and said, we hit the plan. It would have been three years. And he goes, now what? And I go, hire me as CEO. Wow. And he did. <laughs> and wow. so it was like, boom. And so I was a 34-year-old CEO. He was a 27-year-old entrepreneur. And we just dove in. And then mm-hmm. that changed everything. Like that was the turning point. Um, and I'm a big, I, I think it was the first time I kind of plugged into this 
you're going to be a change the world CEO. And then over time, it turned into a real passion for helping others be a change the world you know, leader, change the world CEO. Um, and I've just, I call it pulling on the thread, right? Like that was my first thread and I started pulling on it and I wasn't all the way there and I'm not quite all the way there now. I mean, I'm at right. 85%, but my goal is to get to hundred percent, spending hundred percent of my time doing what I'm good at. Uh, so I'm building a team, I'm hiring people around me. I'm, I'm you know, investing in my own company to, to allow me to do my thing for hundred percent. And I think everybody has that in them. I think in, there's a spark inside of everybody that, that, that is what you are made to do. Zone of genius, you know, energy, mm-hmm. purpose, passion. And so when you find that, I don't care who you are. It could be, I want to be the best mom or I want to be, you know, I want to be a support person or whatever. Um, finding that is crucial. And when you find it, you start pulling on it and like lining up your life around it. Mm. Things tend to work out. Like things tend to manifest. Yes. Like, yes. It takes care of itself. That, by the way, it's, that's very biblical. <laughs> it is. It is. But I've always said, I've always said in sales, the deals close themselves. If you yeah. do the work up front and you do, and you put it in a, and you, and you, to your point, position the other things and situations in a manner to help you. They close themselves. And I've always taken that um, to my personal and professional life as well as kind of the metaphor. But what's what's real? I, by the way, thank you for sharing that story. That was awesome. I've loved it. Loved hearing it. But the other thing that is is a interesting theme that I'm kind of having a, a bit of a uh, conclusion on speaking to you is whether it's religion or spirituality or whatever you may use as your methodology meditation you are another guest in the podcast that um is successful and i'm judging success by not only getting what they want out of their professional life but loving when they go to bed at night right like that's that matters all the other things going on the common trait has been doing the work on themselves like the leaving yourself piece and doing the work on yourself so i feel like it's the one theme that comes out. You know, some people like you just did it through that 40 days of devotion. I met you didn't do it all through that, but certainly that was a vehicle at the moment. Yep. Um, I just find that so interesting. So yeah, I mean, doing the work pays dividends. Happens. Yeah. Show up, do the work. Show and, up. And, you know, and recognize when you're doing the work that doesn't give you energy. Like, yes, yes. That, I think so many people are That's trapped hard. because they're That's doing hard. the work that they, they've trapped themselves in their mind that they have to do the work that's not fulfilling them for some reason that's in their mind. It's a story. And you can't do the work you're supposed to be doing until you break free of that story and mm-hmm. have the courage to leap off into that, into that abyss. Yes. Um, and so it's like burning it all down, man, burning down those stories that are holding us, holding us hostage. And I speak to a lot of founders who don't want to be doing it anymore. Like I talk a lot about uh, corporate growth stages. Yes. So some founders are really good at starting it. But don't want to run it when it's you've got a board and it's boring and you know what I mean. Yeah. And I, I talk to a lot of founders who feel like it's their obligation. They've got a story that they've got to stick with it. And I'm like, no. And I've helped them transition into board roles and bring on CEOs mm-hmm. and you know people that are really good at that next phase of growth. I've got another CEO that I work with who has been in GoGo, you know, kind of the run it thing, and now he wants to be on the business and he really wants to learn how to be a CEO. And he's mm-hmm. willing and he feels like that's where he wants to go next. Great. But you don't have to get caught into the story that there's an obligation. Yes. And it's just so freaking, you know, hostage. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, everybody I talk to, I want them to figure out what that thing is and just start pulling on the string. It doesn't mean you got to do it 100%, but you got to kind of seek it, you know? More, more and more day after day, right? right. It's a, uh, the evolution over time in a direction 100%. specifically. Yeah. Rob, I, man. 
I took a lot of notes. This was a phenomenal time. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, Could you can you share where people can find you? Because I think you might have some new uh, potential new clients or other people that are want to keep track of when Scale Passion the book gets released. Yeah, sure. So uh, ScalePassion.com uh, is where I do a lot of blogging. My team's starting to do a lot of blogging. We blog on all those things, and there's a little assessment that we put together. It takes you know eight minutes. Called Are You Ready to Scale? And so are you ready to scale.com uh, takes you right to that assessment. Okay. Awesome. Hey, Rob, thanks again. And uh, we'll see you soon, my man. More to come on our journey. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much. Awesome. Have a good one.